following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're studying the life of God's servant David. I have in past ministry times worked through this life of David. I'm working through it again, carefully studying it as I go, not simply pulling sermons out of a file. And in fact, other times when I've preached through it, I never had preached on chapter 22. And I'll tell you my personal inclination is not to preach on chapter 22 because part of my humanity wants to say what lesson can you find from a cruel bloodbath by a paranoid king. But on the other hand, I feel there is a great lesson here to be looked at. I remind you quickly that we're coming from David being driven out of Saul's presence. He went to the priest Ahimelech in chapter 21 and got some bread and a sword had to tell a cover story to do it. And then he went to Gath and pretended insanity in front of his enemies, a, an almost ridiculous time. And he's recovered from that, I think, and gotten his feet back under him again. And now we pick up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 22, what is happening with David and more specifically with Saul. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you would conspire against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, all the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has arisen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and is honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. 
Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is with David. And they knew he lied and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand out to strike the priests of the Lord. And then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the sons of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and with me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the word of the Lord. Events like the terrible murders we've just read about as King Saul had 85 priests of God and their families massacred have been repeated often in the history of the Bible and the Christian church. In order that you might better visualize this kind of thing going on in a more modern era, I thought I would remind you of the story of a dedicated American couple who were not yet 30 years old when something terrible happened to them. John and Betty Stamm might have been able to visit our spring missions conference as far as the fact being that They were a young couple dedicated to missions. They came from our region of the country. They were real people. Back in 1934, John and Betty Stam were appointed by the China Inland Mission to go with their three-month-old baby girl to a province of China where they began a pioneering work of preaching and teaching. Since they had roots nearby here, if Westminster Church had existed 80 years ago, we didn't. But if we had, it's entirely probable we could have supported a couple like John and Betty. The Stams were in China only a few months when they were caught up in the swirling civil war. Those who are older will remember the name of nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek was opposed by communist insurgents who eventually won that civil war years later and put all the Americans out of China. But in December of 1934, John and Betty Stam, he 27, she 28, were arrested by communist soldiers who accused them of being interfering and unwelcome foreigners. They were briefly jailed. They were held for $20,000 ransom, which it soon was evident was not going to be paid by anyone. So they were hustled off to a larger town where an exhibition could be made of them. John and Betty Stam were taken to a town square with their hands tied. 
a Chinese shopkeeper who it turned out later was realized to be a Christian, stepped forward and defended them and challenged the communist soldiers. Why are you, why are you harassing these people? They mean us no harm. For his trouble, that man had his hands tied and he was stood beside the stamps. Without any kind of warning, one soldier kicked John Stam behind the knees so that he went down on his knees and a sword sang out and cut off his head. And the same sword killed Betty and killed the Chinese man who had tried to defend them. Little baby Helen, their daughter, was later smuggled out of the country and, as far as I know, may still be alive today somewhere in Pennsylvania. The grave marker of John and Betty Stam reads in these words, that Christ may be glorified, whether by life or by death. When we invite missionaries, as we will here in six weeks or so, to come and they introduce themselves, you will think of them as people who probably do safe things. You would think none of them could have a fate like the Stams. But in a world like today, that's not at all impossible that it could happen. I want to review quickly David's situation leading into 1 Samuel 22. He has gotten his bearings spiritually and otherwise back together after what happened in 21 when he was acting like a desperate man. He ran away from Saul, you remember, nothing probably but the clothes on his back, no weapon, no food. He went to the high priest, Ahimelech, at the little town of Nob where the tabernacle of God was and said, can you give us any bread? He had to tell a false story. And the priest gave him the showbread from the altar. Also gave him the sword of Goliath, probably not really suspecting everything that was going on. And maybe David wanted to protect him so he wouldn't know. Then David went to the city of Gath that Goliath was from and thought perhaps he would hook up there with mercenaries and fight on the, on the side of the Philistines and seemed to lose his nerve so that he had to pretend insanity. What a ridiculous situation he got himself into. But somehow the Lord protected him, and he got out of there. Now he's at this place called the Cave of Adullam. It's not too far from Bethlehem, where he was originally from. There's a whole region honeycombed with caves there. And David was seeing people gather to him, not only his own father and brothers, but various discontented people who were oppressed by Saul were coming and forming the nucleus of his army. We know that David wrote a psalm, several psalms actually at this time. One of them was Psalm 57. If you checked it out, I'll bet that the leading little paragraph at the beginning of Psalm 57 in your Bible says, written while David was at the cave of Adullam. And in that psalm, we read him saying, O God, in the shadow of your wings... I take my refuge. I cry to God, most high, who fulfills his purpose for me. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I love that because it tells me that good things, spiritual things, have taken hold in him. And he's a different man than the man who had to pretend he was insane just a little while before. God is working in his heart, preparing him to be a leader and a king. Now, we must not visualize this struggle between 
King Saul and King David as just some long-ago story that has no wider consequence. I think, in fact, it belongs in a much broader frame of reference. It belongs in the same context as what Paul was talking about when he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, King Saul. We wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. What we have in David's day is something the church sees continually as people of God are locked in a cosmic warfare opposed by none other than the sword of Antichrist, the sword of that power which opposes God and His Son upon this earth. Now, first of all, I ask you to observe how the universal church of God was represented in Israel's priesthood and its tabernacle at that time. Remember, we talked last time, this obscure village called Nob, it wasn't much of a place, but nevertheless, it was the worship center at that time. The tabernacle was there. God had established the tabernacle. God had established the priesthood. And there were 85 priests there in a line of descent, the family of Aaron, serving the sacrificial system, acting as a place of prayer where someone could come and find sanctuary or ask for prayer or guidance, and the priest would pray with them evidently from what we read here. Well, we know that the tabernacle was something and its worship and the sacrifices were something that Saul had not fully respected from the very first day of his kingdom. You remember how he first appeared to turn aside when he said, I can do the sacrifice. I can't wait for Samuel to get here. And he put himself in the place of the priest, and he was chastised most strongly. And Samuel said, God is tearing the kingdom away from you. Maybe you were a person who thought, gee, that's an awfully big punishment for something that doesn't seem like, to me, a big deal. Well, last week we heard of David coming to Ahimelech in need of food and provision telling a cover story. He wasn't acting with complete honor as he said he had needed food for his men who were waiting nearby and so on, which wasn't true. But the priest Ahimelech helped him and not, probably not seeing through that story completely. And the interesting little thing to notice, if you cast your eye back at chapter 21 and verse 7, was someone who stood silently by witnessing. Now there was a certain man of the servant of Saul there detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's herdsmen. One commentator, I think, went a little too far when he said, here was Doeg, the head of Saul's CIA. I don't think that was quite true. But here was a man loyal to Saul, not to David and not to Ahimelech, witnessing this. Now opens the scene that I read in verse 6 of chapter 22, and it's, it's most unusual. Saul is holding court outdoors where he is. There's a tamarisk tree there. I didn't take time to check out if that has any special significance, but there he is with a spear in his hand, and that was suitable for Saul since he was a man of war and opposition. And frankly, what he's doing with his servants gathered around him is holding a pity party. Poor me. Folks, is there anybody else who gives you rewards and lands and offices to hold and benefits like I do? But you conspire. You let David conspire against me. 
Does anybody here sorry for me? He literally says that. None of you is sorry for me. Poor me. Saul can hardly stand it. And up steps Doeg. And Doeg is ready to tell, Oh, Saul, I was just waiting to tell you what I saw between David and your priest, Ahimelech, a few days ago. And so a summons goes out immediately, not just for Ahimelech, but all the priests with him. Everyone, the seminarians, the older priests, everybody who was there serving at the tabernacle. All of you come. And the main priest, Ahimelech, steps forward and gives the king an honest account of exactly what happened, word for word, transparent, nothing to hide. He's a man of courage and integrity. He says, sure, I helped David. I've helped him many times. He's your servant. Who's a better servant to you, Saul, than David? Why would I not help David, the king's servant? And Ahimelech almost poured gasoline on Saul's fire in verse 14 of 22 by saying, who has been more faithful to you than David? I'm convinced that tyrants like Saul can't stand the truth. The simple truth convicts them. They can't fight it. They can't dispute it. They can't reason their way around it. And so illogically and unreasonably, they simply ignore it and act with their raw power. And you see what Saul did that tragic day. The power of truth provoked him like you might provoke a hungry lion that hadn't eaten for two days and poked it with a sharp spear. Saul roared in reply. Secondly, I want you to consider the spirit of Antichrist opposing the church of God. You see, the characteristic goal of Antichrist in the Bible is to crush and destroy God's people. It isn't simply something that one man was doing. This isn't just an incident of one jealous, paranoid king whose mind is coming unhinged back in 1050 B.C., This is an outbreak of the universal hostility of Satan, the prince of this age, against the living kingdom of God. And you see Saul giving this incredible order. David had acted the part of a madman in the previous chapter. Saul is a madman. When he says, let the priests die and every one of them, kill them all. And his own troops wouldn't do it. They knew this was wrong before God, a heinous thing for a king to say. But Doeg, the political opportunist, ambitious to please Saul, had no problem at all. I puzzled in my own mind, how does one man with a sword kill 85? I don't know. Maybe Saul's soldiers encircled them so they couldn't get away or something. But Doeg was the henchman who became drenched in innocent blood, and then somehow commanded, perhaps other soldiers participated, as they went back to the village of Nob and wiped the place out, every living thing. Amazing. This is Saul who wouldn't obey God's command to kill all the Amalekites who were God's heretical enemies, but he would kill an entire village of his own people made up of priests assigned to approach God and have a place of sanctuary for God's people. Saul and Doeg stand in the line of Pharaoh killing the babies of Egypt where Moses escaped, you remember? They stand in the line of 
Queen Jezebel at a different time pursuing the prophet Elijah, trying to kill him. They stand in the line of Herod the Great, killing the babies of nearby Bethlehem. Interestingly, these two places weren't very far apart. Where Herod had tried to kill Jesus much later. You see, maybe you think like I do, and if you read the early part of Saul's story, you think, gee, he wasn't such a bad guy. He just kind of made honest mistakes when he offered the sacrifice because he was impatient. Why was that such a big deal? Well, if you can't see why that was a big deal, can you see it here? That God had sufficient cause to reject Saul as king if nothing but this gory page was written by his command and his action. If the man never sinned at any time previously or afterward in his life, but he was behind this, it was enough to separate Saul from the fellowship of God and consign him to an eternal place of suffering. And compare Saul, if you will, to David's reaction to this massacre as you see it near the end of the chapter that I read. David heard this. What did he immediately say? Remember, I was arguing the difference between David and Saul. What, what did I say the difference was? One man knew how to repent, and the other never did. David now repents for something he doesn't even have to repent for. Surely this was my fault. Surely this happened. All these priests were killed because I went there and consulted Ahimelech. I'm to blame. When he wasn't even to blame. You see the very different hearts of two kings here. And by the way, a little detail that ought to be noted. Something happens in this chapter. I didn't read verse 5 where the name of somebody you probably never heard of unless you're a really good Bible student. The prophet Gad was now with David. A man who could prophesy, a man who could advise the way Samuel had done before. David had a prophet in his camp now. And now he had a priest. Because Abiathar, the only son who escaped, the son of Ahimelech who escaped from the massacre somehow. How did he get away? We don't know. He came and attached himself to David. So David now has a prophet and a priest. Saul has no priest because he doesn't want one. And he wouldn't listen to one if he had him. Now turning to some application of all this ancient history to us, I say this to you thirdly, that our chapter here, 1 Samuel 22, presents to us a continual warfare that's being carried out yet today in our world, in our society. Some of you probably wondered about my using the word antichrist since I'm talking from the Old Testament. And you probably know that antichrist doesn't come up in the Old Testament. It's not an Old Testament word. In fact, it's not a New Testament word either except in one book. 1 John, the word antichrist occurs five times in the whole Bible. They're all in 1 John, a New Testament book written quite late. And there, one of the things that's said is this, 1 John 2.18, John writes, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so I say many antichrists have already come. John was teaching there, if we could simplify a complicated subject, that at the end of the age before Christ appears, there will be some individual or some organization, perhaps an organized religion or 
or some power will arise to head up and embody evil in the world. But in addition to that, he's saying, many such embodiments have already appeared. And that's why I can go all the way back to 1 Samuel and say Antichrist was at work throughout all of the Scripture and through our continuing history. There are historic eruptions of the rule of Satan and the naked use of his power against the people of God that we could itemize and list ad infinitum. In the first and second centuries, it was the power and forces of Antichrist persecuting the early church that drove the first Christians out into the Mediterranean basin. They went down to the coast of Africa. They went east as far as India. They went north up into Europe and France, even eventually to Britain with the gospel. Why? Because everywhere they went, people pursued them and opposed them and tried to kill them. The power of persecution actually helped plant the church in God's amazing sovereignty. I doubt that many of you, I'm not impugning your intelligence, I'm sure there are a few here, but I don't think too many of you, if I said, please give me a history of the Huguenot Christians, would say, who? What are you talking about? Who are the Huguenots? Some of you know. The Huguenots were heirs of John Calvin and the Reformation in Switzerland and France, the French-speaking people. Even though France was a closed country, the Church of Rome ruled with an iron rod and the French government opposed the Protestants. Calvin had been driven out with a price on his head. There were many Christians who received the gospel in France, many, many, many of them. The Reformation took hold in France despite persecution. In fact, at their height... The Huguenots, as they were called, French Reformed Protestants, evangelical people who believed God's Word, reached a population of some, say, as many as one and a half million in France. And they were some of the best educated. They were tradesmen. They were shop owners. They were people in local government. They were the solid citizens, the middle-class people of France. But always they had opposition, and it rose and it fell, and it rose and it fell for decades. In 1572, in one day, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre killed somewhere. The the estimates wildly vary, but the lowest estimate I've ever seen is 30,000. The highest I've ever seen is 90,000. People killed in one single day of violence against the French Protestants. They were driven out of the country. America received many of the Huguenots. You can learn that some of them settled right here in Lancaster County and down in the Carolinas especially. 600 church buildings owned by Huguenots were destroyed, torn down by the government and the Roman church until there was hardly a remnant of these excellent people left in France. Oh, by the way, France has been in the news. Have you noticed? France, a country I'm not intending to mock or belittle, but a country that is ruled basically by atheistic socialism and now has the rising largest Muslim population in Europe, lost its population that represented the gospel and the truth of God. They were driven out. Now, We can also say that in 2015, there are many antichrists that fight both openly and covertly against the truth of God and the gospel in our own country. 
We have a newly emboldened secular government suddenly, suddenly meaning the last few decades, that now can say, wait a minute, we're not subject to the truths of Christianity anymore. We're not in fealty to the Bible anymore. Reason rules, and reason says we will do what kind of morality the people decide. My wife and I just heard it said, I'm sure you did in the news the other day, well, it appears that this may be the year that the Supreme Court will have the final word on gay marriage. The Supreme Court will not have the final word on gay marriage. God has had the final word already. The Supreme Court rules in our land. They are to be respected, but they can be wrong. The president can be wrong. Congress can be wrong. The federal courts can be wrong. Town councils and school boards can be wrong. And the leering, skull-like face of Antichrist can appear in our country in any of these places and in any of these ways. It's not everywhere. There are good people in our government, many of them. But I think you know what I'm talking about. Try out the mainline denominational Protestant seminaries of our country, where they still even exist. They're rather small in the populations they draw. The one in our particular town, I read years ago, most of the students in the seminary, which was founded by good German Reformed folks, born of the Heidelberg Catechism faith, now are Unitarians. That's interesting. What are you going to learn that prepares you for ministry if you're being taught sociology and psychology and gender studies in place of Holy Scripture? Not very much that's of any value. Should we be without hope in the face of all this? Is this a lot of demagoguery from me? I hope not. But Saul's vicious command to kill the Israelite priests you see, did not extinguish the Word of God, did not extinguish the operation of the Holy Spirit, changing people, drawing people around his next King David. Saul was here in the midst of doing this terrible thing, losing the respect and loyalty that a a worldly leader should have sought and cultivated. He was becoming a weak object of scorn and pity. Because if all you've got to exercise is the power of mighty force And that's the only way you can answer mighty truth. You haven't got much. Your moral poverty will soon be clear. 1 Samuel will go on in further chapters to show us that God was sovereign. And this David was rising in godliness. And in God's establishment of him, Saul was sinking desperately like a man going down into quicksand and would end up in suicide in a few more chapters. A new kingdom was taking shape. God was working. A high priest was now in the camp of David. God, you see, always preserves his people. God is always working for his church, even in desperate times, even in times when John and Betty Stam are cut down in their steps after a couple months of ministry. God is working. I come to this conclusion today. I state it this way. The Lord does not promise that we, any of us, will never die for his kingdom. He never promised that. But he does promise that his kingdom cannot die. 
And in Jesus Christ, he came into this world and launched the counterattack against Satan and all the antichrists that ever will be or exhibit themselves. And we know what happened. Jesus won. You know, I, I love to tell folks, I guess I've said it, you get tired of me saying it. You want the explanation of the book of Revelation. It's, don't pretend Revelation is a tough book. It's a real easy book. Just tell your friends two words about Revelation. Jesus wins, period. And that's the verdict, you know. That's the final score. That's the Super Bowl score of Jesus versus the Antichrist. He wins. But right now, it is not yet the end of the age. And the minute your life becomes identified with the kingdom of Christ, you have a target painted on your back. And you could become like the 85 priests or John and Betty Stam or the Huguenots in France. You could be the subject of real harm or at least scorn and mockery and rejection in the society. You will be the minority. You better know that. Because the enemies of Christ will remain ferocious as opposers of his people right up to the end of the age when Christ gloriously returns. But let me ask you, do you want to be found following a pathetic king like Saul or a king like Jesus? And I say again, our Lord did not guarantee that we will never die for his kingdom. Some of us might. Just give it a few more decades. Some of us might. But we are absolutely assured of this. The kingdom of our God and of our Christ cannot, will not, ever die. And so, Father, we ask you to make us people who are realistic in our world. May we not be those who are gulled and deceived by the power brokers who tell us the things you say are wrong are suddenly not wrong. May we not be under the spell of an age that worships materialism and power and prestige and image, all the gods of this world who are actually in fealty to Antichrist. Will you steal your people with the strength of David that we might stand up to the Doegs, that we might stand tall when someone's saying, on which side do you count? We ask for your strength and your grace to do this in a difficult age. May it be for your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.